Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> this morning, I'll be reading Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8 to 6, verse 2. Excuse me, sounding like a frog. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high officials is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gained from a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth will with his income. This also is vanity. When, God, when goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner? But to see them with his eyes, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not be will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in the darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all the desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are grateful for your word, Father, and we thank you that it's true. And it's true even when it's hard, uh, but we trust that your love for us is in it. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and help us to receive the word that Hope just read and be with me as I preach and help us all to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, a guy named Craig Blomberg, he's a New Testament scholar, and he writes this. He says, the greatest danger to Western Christianity is not, and I don't know what you're thinking, what, I don't know, don't, don't speak it out, but I just wonder what would come to mind. The greatest danger. He says, it's not Marxism, Islam, New Age, secularism, 
postmodernism or humanism, he says it's the pervasive materialism of our affluent culture. And I'm not sure if he's right. I mean, who can know such things? The greatest danger. I don't know. But he could be right. He could be right. I mean, consider that nearly 25% of Jesus' words in the New Testament are about money and wealth. Uh, it's, and specifically the danger of it. Like, Jesus just devoted a lot of his time, it seems, to talking about the threat of money. And that was 2,000 years ago. Today, you and I live in the wealthiest society in human history. And to use a word popularized in a 2001 book, we are all infected with affluenza. Affluenza. Oh, it's bad, I know. <laughs> but uh, the book describes this condition as a painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. It's a, it's a serious condition. And I think if you're honest with yourself, you'll see that it does threaten you. I mean, it threatens all of us from, from kids just sitting down and um, zoning out in front of their screens where they're seeing like all kinds of commercials and advertisements to the adult worrying about his retirement portfolio. Uh, this, is, this is a challenge that affects each of us. Richard Foster describes the condition like this. He says, contemporary culture is plagued by the passion to possess. The unreasoned boast abounds that the good life is found in accumulation, that more is better. Indeed, we often accept this notion without question, with the result that the lust for, in, for affluence in contemporary society has become psychotic. It has completely lost touch with reality. But Kohelet isn't surprised by any of it. Uh, in this morning's passage, he has returned to his quest, and we've been peering over his shoulder as he's gone on this quest. He, he's, he's on a um, universal search for meaning. And as we've journeyed with him, we've seen him try out all kinds of different stuff, like pleasure, wisdom, work. But each time he investigates some new sphere of life as it actually is, he finds that it is what? Hebel. It's Hebel. Uh, it is, it's vanity of vanities. It is uh, like vapor. It's confusing. It's confounding. It's an enigma. Uh, and so now in our passage, Kohelet turns his attention to wealth, to possessions, to money. Will this be the thing, finally, that rises above the Hebel? No, family. It will not. Wealth, according to Kohelet, is Hebel along with the rest of it. But here, Kohelet actually takes his critique a step farther because not only, according to Kohelet, does money and wealth fail to deliver the meaning we need, but it also like, threatens the destruction of our very lives. And so in other words, if it is vapor, it's a poisonous vapor. If it's smoke, it's smoke that you choke on. So let's look at his assessment. Uh, we might summarize his findings in the words of the notorious B.I.G. of East Coast hip-hop fame, who says what? Mo money, mo problems. Mo money, mo problems. That's co that's, we could close in prayer. That's, co that's what Kohelet is saying. Mo money, mo, mo problems. Or shifting to a slightly different register, uh, the words of British historian Thomas Carlyle, who observes that for a hundred people that can bear adversity, there is hardly a one that can bear prosperity. Mo money, mo problems. 
Basically, Kohela observes that far from bringing lasting meaning, increased wealth introduces all kinds of problems into our lives. He identifies at least six things that can go wrong with us and our wealth in this passage, and I'm just going to list them for you, and, and, and we'll, we'll uh, note them with Kohelet. First, Kohelet notices the problem of oppression and injustice, which we looked at last week, but here Kohelet is highlighting uh, how this problem connects with wealth in particular ways. And so look again. By the way, I'm going to be referring to verses, and um, it might help for you to have your Bible open because I don't want to read through the whole passage again. But look at verse 8 of chapter 5. Kohelet is saying, like, it shouldn't surprise you when you see um, oppression and injustice against the poor happening in, in your land, especially if the decisions are flowing down from places of great power and privilege. Don't be amazed, he says, because this is just the way the world works. I mean, think about it. Like, very rarely is it the vulnerable poor oppressing the powerful rich. No, injustice flows from the top down. So that's, that's one problem. But also, there's the dynamic and the reality that the wealthier you get, um, the easier it is, even if you're not doing, like, deliberately, intentionally, the actual oppressing, the wealthier you get, the easier it is to become just disconnected from the needs of the poor and oppressed. The higher up you move socially, the easier it is to grow blind to the conditions of the low and the least and the last. Um, I was having a conversation with a friend um, early this week, and he, he, he's, he's basically moving into a higher tax bracket. He has a lot more wealth than he is used to having, he has lived a very modest life, and he and his um, wife are looking for a new home, and they're looking for, they, they have, they realize that they have the ability to move into, like, a really nice neighborhood with a really nice home, and he was talking to me about how, like, how they could use that home for, you know, the goodness of God's kingdom, and they could have a great room, and they could host, and they could have parties and celebrations, and how it could just be this wonderful thing, and he said, but Kevin, I'm worried that, like, maybe this is how it starts. You know, it's just a, it's this one decision that just connects us with a different community, puts us out of touch with the needs of the people we want to be connected with, and then it's just, it's just like the first step to disaster. He said, he said I'm worrying about that. Um, to be clear, it's not that poor people are always righteous and just, and it's not that, that wealth always leads to injustice. It's that wealth and power can so easily insulate us from the real needs in our communities that doing justice requires us to address. So that's a problem that Kohela is just putting his finger on and saying, look, um, more money, more problems, injustice, oppression. Here's another problem, dissatisfaction. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So the problem here is that money never satisfies. We have a hard time believing this, um, we usually tell ourselves that if we just had more money, we'd be content, that, we would, that that would be enough. But no, um, that is never how it actually works. The oil tycoon, John D. Rockefeller, uh, he was the first billionaire in the U.S., and for a time he was the wealthiest person in the world. And uh, he was once asked by a reporter, um, how much money is enough? And do you remember his response? Yeah, I mean, he said, yeah, just a little more just a little more. Um, 
if money is what you love, if it's what you've set your heart on, like you will never be satisfied with the level of wealth you have, even if you're the wealthiest person in the world. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. Um, money has this self-consuming quality. The more you make, the more you have, the more you feel like you need. And, and we're all familiar with this cycle of consumption, right? Like you earn, you earn a little bit more, and so you buy a little bit more, maybe a bigger house or a better car or a more expensive lawn mower, and then, you, uh, then, and then what do you have to do? Well, then you have to keep earning more in order to maintain that lifestyle. And then you get to a place where you feel like you can't make ends meet, even though you're the one who's created that pressure on yourself just by your habits of consumption. The problem is that wealth never satisfies. We've, we've, we're always hungry for more. Here's a third challenge that wealth introduces. Look at verses 11 and 12. Um, Kohelet observes in these verses that more money correlates with more anxiety and more restlessness. You probably know this from your own experience that accumulation of more and more stuff complicates your life. It creates bills, creditors, accounts to manage, possessions to maintain. It's just more and more to worry about. Um, when Libby and I first got married, we lived in a tiny, tiny little one-bedroom apartment in Spokane, Washington. And then it wasn't long after uh, we got married that we moved across the country to New Jersey, and we packed up all of our earthly belongings into like this tiny, it's like the smallest U-Haul trailer that U-Haul offers. And we drove across, across the country to New Jersey, and we moved into uh, married student housing at seminary, tiny, tiny apartment, one bedroom. And we lived in tiny one-bedroom apartments, um, even when we first moved to Richmond, tiny one-bedroom apartment. And then we finally said, okay, it's time for a house. So some of you, some of you remember that first house that we bought. Was it, was it a huge mansion? No, it was not. Uh, it was a tiny, tiny little house. Uh, and we thought, gosh, look at all this space we have. I mean, this is like, this is amazing how much space we have. We, we thought, we're going to just, we're going to live so simply. And, and then before long, like, that house was bursting at the seams with stuff and then with kids. And, um, and so we moved to a bigger house. And we, when we moved into that house, like, oh, look at all the space we have. I mean, just, like, so much open floor space. This place is massive. It's like a just, like, cavern, cavernous rooms after cavernous room. And, um, and now it's just, like, full, just full of stuff. And I'll tell you what, like, I'm not less anxious now than I was when I had like a small U-Haul amount of earthly belongings. I'm, I'm so much more anxious now that I have more responsibilities, more possessions to keep track of, more accounts. I mean, it's just the anxiety and the restlessness builds. It builds. Kohelet says, exactly. Mo money, mo problems. One of which is increased anxiety. Here's another one. Look at verse 17. He's, he says, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. And, and so Kohelet, he sees, he's looking out over the world. He sees a wealthy man eating by himself in a darkened room, fretting and worrying, isolated from human community, angry and alone. And it's just this extremely sad image. Uh, because eating, I mean, especially... 
especially in scripture, like eating is supposed to be this communal thing, this joyful thing, this life-giving thing. Uh, but, but here's this sad, depressed man eating alone, and it's connected exactly to his wealth. What, what Kohelet sees is that increased wealth so often leads to increased uh, relational isolation. It pulls us away from human community. Um, the wealthier we get, the more self-sufficient we become. And, and so think about it. Like You just don't need other people as much if you can meet all your own needs with your own wealth. This reality gets expressed even in the physical landscapes of our neighborhoods. Like if you, if you go out to like the really nice suburbs with the big houses, um, you, can, you can imagine people just um, like commuting every day to and from work without ever encountering their neighbors, right? It's you get into the car, which is in your garage, and then you click your clicker, and the door opens, and off you are to work, and then you come home at the end of the day right into the garage, and that's that, and you, you never even have to be connected to your neighbors, and compare that to a tiny apartment complex with thin walls where your neighbor's business becomes your business, whether you like it or not. And uh, gosh, I was just thinking, when we did, li when we did live in married student housing in the seminary, like, uh, it was public housing that the seminary had bought and turned into um, to housing for their beloved students. And the walls were incredibly thin, and we had a neighbor. This is, this is um, totally off topic. But we had a neighbor, just thinking about this guy, Ryan Smith. Um, he would sneak into our apartment and he would hide a fart machine uh, <laughs> under our mattress. And then the walls were so thin that from his apartment, he could make that thing go off whenever he wanted. And so Libby and I were really worried about each other for a little while. Uh, and, but thin walls, like where your neighbors know your business whether you want them to or not. And, and you think about lower income neighborhoods where like the bus is the main mode of transportation. And so um, whether you like it or not, you are forced to encounter your neighbors in deeper ways, but with the potential um, of them being really meaningful ways. Um, lower income neighbors often learn to rely on each other in ways that the wealthy never need to um, because they're so um, self-sufficient. Here's a fifth problem Kohala identifies. That one was relational isolation. This one's insecurity. Look at verse 13 and 14. There's a grievous evil I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. I mean, so many of us pursue wealth because we think that it's going to provide security and stability. We think having it will lead to some measure of control over our lives and our futures and the futures of our children. And, and Kohela is just wanting us to wake up to the reality that there is absolutely no guarantee of that. Uh, clothes do not keep you from wrinkling and aging. Retirement funds do not repair relationships. Uh, you can try to be really wise with your investments and you can try to leave something for your kids, but those investments can go sideways and you can lose it all. And, and so like, wealth is not going to be the thing that protects you, that gives you any kind of ultimate security. Like, it can't keep you from real tragedy. Um, your possessions can do nothing at the end of the day to heal your soul. And, and so the security that wealth promises is illusory. Which leads to the last big problem Kohelet sees. Um, and there's just no way to pull this punch. You're gonna die. 
they're going to die. And uh, so Kohelet says, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. And that's true. I mean, remember, for Kohelet, death is the great equalizer. You can spend your life acquiring more and more stuff, wealth, money, possessions. But when you die, you don't take it with you. You do not take it with you. John Stott used to tell the story of a lady who was attending the funeral of a man who, uh, who um, had been very wealthy, just who had amassed like an incredible estate. And so um, she was curious about the size of the estate. And after the funeral service, she walked up to the minister and she said, well, what did he leave behind? To which the minister replied, everything. Everything. Um, we do not take it with us. See, it's, it's, it's Hebel. It's Hebel. Uh, now, given all of these problems with wealth, we might expect Kohelet to advise that we abandon the pursuit of wealth altogether. We might expect an exhortation to shun money, to take a vow of poverty, to run away, maybe, to live in a desert cave, but instead, we get verses 18 uh, through 20, and you can look at those, where Kohelet says it's, it's, actually, it's good to eat. Remember, he said this before. It's good to eat. It's good to drink. It's good to find enjoyment. And whatever wealth and possessions, God gives you the power to enjoy. He says that. Now, again, I don't see this as being like a sudden shift from complaint to celebration. I don't think Kohelet is of two minds bouncing back and forth, like it's all Hebel. Oh, no, it's all really good. No, I think that um, this is not a sigh of contentment, but it really is a sigh of resignation on Kohelet's part. When Kohelet says it's all Hebel, like when that's his thesis at the beginning and just the constant refrain throughout, I think we can just take him at his word. Like This is his perspective. It is all Hebel. And yet, um, he can't shake the intuition that there is something really good about God's material gifts. Uh, and that there is a place to enjoy them rightly as good gifts from God. And so he is here, um, in however limited a way, calling our attention to God as giver, to the reality that everything we have is a gift from God. We might call to mind 1 Timothy 4, where Paul says that everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Um, so on one hand, like all of the problems that Kohelet identifies with money should make us very wary of materialism, right? It's like, this is a big deal. This threatens the human soul. Um, but it would be a mistake to fall off the horse on the other side by embracing a life that uh, just entirely rejects the material world as if it isn't full of God's good gifts. We want to be people who neither uh, worship creation nor who reject creation. And Kohela at least hints at a way that we might live wisely with our wealth, loving the giver, receiving the gifts with gratitude, enjoying them in a way that is kind of like right-sized. But Kohelet can only take us so far. I mean, he can point out the problems. He can give his sigh of resignation and say, ah, just enjoy it as best you can. But that's, that's as far as Kohelet can take us. And so I'm glad again that while Ecclesiastes is true, uh, it's not the whole truth. 
And when we turn to the way of Jesus, um, we do find Jesus talking a lot about wealth, and we find a lot of Kohelet-like warnings about the dangers of wealth. But we also find um, in the teachings of Jesus and in the teachings of those who came after Jesus, um, like some real strategies and practices for living with wealth wisely right here, right now. So let me just highlight a few of those. Um, first, there's a practice of self-examination. There's an invitation to um, begin cultivating in our lives an attentiveness to our attitudes toward money. Like, to start paying attention to how money actually affects our hearts. Kohelet says that the person who loves money will never be satisfied. And, and Paul tells us, you remember, that the love of money is, is at the root of all kinds of evil. Do we love money? Do you love money? You know, as a pastor, uh, like one of, one of the great privileges I have is that um, it's not uncommon for people to come to me and to share um, their struggles and sometimes to share their sin in areas of brokenness in their life. And I've been um, a pastor for, gosh, it's coming up on like 17 years with you all. And it was a couple of years that I was working as in pastoral roles at churches before that. And in all of those years, um, not a single person has come to me and said, Kevin, I am really greedy. I'm really struggling with greed. I love money too much. No one's ever said that. I mean, it's like we know when we're committing adultery, right? Like when we're being unfaithful to our spouse. We know when we are like harboring bitterness in our heart against another person and when it's really hard to forgive someone. But, like, how do we know if we're greedy? How do we know if we love money too much? I mean, empirically, statistically, uh, pretty much every single person in this room compared to the world is really well off. Like, we're doing pretty well. Um, and, and we usually think that the rich and the wealthy is someone else because it's never hard to find someone who has more than we do. There are always others who have more money, who live more extravagantly, who have better cars, bigger homes, and so on. And so it's easy to feel like it's easy to feel like this is always someone else's problem. It's easy to hear a sermon about the problems of money and say, yeah, it's a big problem for them. Um, because they're the rich ones. And me, I'm just getting by. Wouldn't it be weird, family, if we lived in a culture completely infected with this affluenza disease? And we happened to be the only people immune to it. See, there is an, there's an um, invitation to self-examination, to pay attention to um, covetousness in your life. When, you, when you're comparing yourself to someone else and, and saying, I wish I had what they had. What's that about? What's going on in your heart with that? Um, to pay attention to excessive worry about finances. I mean, in God's um, providential sense of uh, humor and irony. Um, I spent so much of this week both writing this sermon and also fretting about having enough. Having enough income, having enough like to you know, make the financial obligations that we've made, like just do I have enough? And I'm like, okay, what is going on in the heart of Kevin Germer where like 
I know on one hand that if I were asked like um, on a multiple choice quiz, like what's more important, Jesus, um, you know, my pet dog or money, like I would answer that correctly. I'd say Jesus is more important. But like in my day in and day out, like why am I so anxious? Why am I so anxious about um, God's provision for us? So pay attention to excessive worry about finances. Pay attention to your desire to have things that you really don't need at all. New iPhone came out. My iPhone is chipped, cracked. <laughs> Who was I joking with? Like I start to, I, I've noticed that subconsciously when a new iPhone comes out, I start to drop my current <laughs> iPhone more. Like my, my fingers just become slippier. Slip, slippier? Slipperier. Slipperier. Uh, because like a part of me deep down inside wants, that, wants an excuse to buy the new iPhone. Um, let's not assume that this is someone else's problem. Let's assume this is my problem. This is your problem. Let's assume that it's ours. And so there's an invitation for us to get real and to see, to begin to see some of the ways that um, the love of money is warping us. It's deforming us. So that's one practice, just that practice of self-examination. Here's another one. Um, we're invited to the practice of simplicity. Uh, and, and this is just a way of loosening the grip of money on our hearts. Um, and, and, the basics, and the basics are pretty um, straightforward. It's just an invitation um, to deliberately, intentionally limit our possessions. Like to live with far less than we could. To not feel like just because we can have it, we should have it. To say, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be more um, constricted uh, for the sake of actually a much deeper freedom. I'm going to live a life that has um, tighter boundaries for the sake of my soul thriving. Um, John Stott, again, he said, since our lives are spent between two moments of nakedness, it's best to travel light. <laughs> that makes sense. Like, why, why spend, like, this little blip of a life we have, uh, 4,000 weeks, if you live to be 80, just amassing more and more stuff when, like, you came into this world without anything, you will leave this world without anything. So why think that just filling your life with stuff in the meantime is the way to go? We're invited to the practice of simplicity, um, to deliberately do battle with our desires for more, to interrogate our cravings for things that we don't really need, and just to live with less to live with less. That could be such a powerful witness, family, um, for the church to take up uh, in a culture that really is just infected with this disease. Here's the third practice that can help us keep the potential idol of wealth in check. It's generosity. So if you're living with less, that's great. That's one thing. But then another practice would be to regularly give away portions of what you do have. Kohelet thought it a great evil that a stranger might enjoy the fruit of his labor, uh, which is interesting. I mean, when we get to the Apostle Paul, uh, he seems to think it's actually, it would actually be a wonderful thing for someone else, even a stranger, to enjoy the fruit of your labor. He says it's far better to give than to receive. It's far better to bless others by giving to them, even if they're strangers, than it is to receive. Um, Miroslav Wolf, he's a Croatian theologian, he says this, he says, we are not the final destination 
in the flow of God's gifts. We are midstream middlemen. The gifts flow to us, then they flow from us. Another writer puts it like this. He says, abundance isn't God's provision for me to live in luxury. Like That's not God's goal when he brings gifts into your life. It's his provision for me to help others live. God entrusts to me, excuse me, God entrusts me with his money um, not to build my kingdom, but to invest in his. And, and so remember, family, that we really are stewards. Like we're not owners. And, and, and as stewards, you see, the question is no longer, um, how can I, out of the goodness of my heart, just give away my stuff? <laughs> no. Uh, the question is, since all of my wealth really belongs to God, since it really is his and not mine, um, how would God like me to plow it out into the lives of others for their good and for the good of God's coming kingdom? So there's an invitation to embrace the practice of generosity. Um, that pra- that's a practice that like reminds us in very uh, tangible ways that um, stuff is just stuff. Money is just money. Like, we won't actually lose ourselves by giving away our wealth. But it's hard to trust that. It's hard to trust that. It's hard for me to trust that. My guess is it's hard for you to trust that too. Um, These practices, all of them, can be really hard for people like us who love money too much uh, and who often treat our wealth not as a gift to be stewarded, but as as a source of security and stability and identity and meaning. And so look with me at one more thing Kohelet says. Verse 18. It it turns, I I just take others' word for this. Uh, Apparently verse 18 is just a really hard verse to translate from the Hebrew, like it's pretty cryptic in the Hebrew. Um, The ESV brings it over like this. This is a gain for the land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. And so it's like, I don't want to load too much onto that. I don't, I'm not sure that this is what Kohelet had in mind uh, when he wrote that cryptic Hebrew. But like, um, what I imagine Kohelet envisioning, in the midst of all the problems that arise from our love of money and the pursuit of wealth, is a just and generous king uh, who wields his power and who invests his wealth not for himself, but for the land and for the good of the people in the land, for their provision, for their well-being. And when you, when you read through Israel's story in the Old Testament, uh, you just won't find that king. I mean, not really. You'll, you'll find some kings who are relatively better than the others, but you don't really find this king. Um, but we do find this king family when we look at Jesus Christ. I mean, who is Jesus? Like, he is, he's the one who owns, like, uh, the cattle on a thousand hills, right? Like, he has it all. Um, he, and, and more than that, he is, like, the embodied generosity of God. God himself uh, giving himself in love for the world and even to his enemies even to strangers who he would make friends. The Apostle Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. 
Um, and, and so in Jesus, we see a God who, who has everything and who divests himself of all of it, who gives everything um, to win us back, to destroy the lies in our hearts about wealth and to bring us to the only one who can possibly satisfy the deep longings of our heart, who can possibly um, touch those places in our souls that are just crying out for real security, for real meaning, for, for a real sense of identity and purpose. Like Jesus gives everything to bring us to this one, the only one who can be our true security and identity and treasure. Um, the gospel sets us free in a profound way from the horrible isolation of belonging to no one but ourselves and to thinking that it's up to us to scrape our way by in the world. He sets us free from the lie that um, we will not be taken care of if we don't take care of ourselves. He leads us into the truth, that, um, the truth and the freedom of knowing we have a good father who is taking care of us. I feel like just in my own soul, that's something that day after day this past week, um, God was leading me back to this reality that I have a father in heaven who knows my needs way better than I do, who knows the needs of my family way better than I do, and who's actually really eager to care for me um, in the ways that matter. And, and, and sometimes I'm really confused about what those are. Like, I think that the ways that matter, I, I think that, like, oh, these ways matter. Like, being cared for looks like X, Y, and Z, and I feel like God just has a much better handle on that than I do. Like, it... it his care of me might not look how I expect it to look, but it's promised. It's promised that he's going to care for me. And that's a promise for you too. Um, the God you know in Jesus Christ isn't a God who's going to turn his back on you. He's not going to leave you high and dry. Um, when you have the one who has everything, when he has you, uh, there's freedom for self-examination even if it brings up all kinds of darkness in your heart, because your relationship with God doesn't depend on the amount of darkness in your heart. There's, free for, there's freedom for simplicity. You don't have to always worry about accumulating stuff when, when your heavenly father um, has the whole world in his hands. There is freedom for radical generosity. I mean, you can't give away anything that you won't get back, like, thousandfold in the gospel one way or another in ways like far far better than you can imagine far better than you can imagine and, and so family Jesus um, I want you to trust and I want you to help me trust um, that Jesus is absolutely committed to caring for us I'll remind you of that and you remind me of that Christ is our light Christ is our light so let's pray